and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by my friends George Dunn and Peter Pike for a conversation on Korean cinema and on the cinema of Park Chan-wook especially. He is my favorite among the Korean directors. He has been the most successful internationally, I believe, but also in South Korea itself. And we have already discussed the centerpiece of his Vengeance trilogy, his most famous production, Old Boy. Today we turn to the last part of the trilogy, which has been translated as Lady Vengeance or Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, since it does deal with vengeance, but which is called in Korean something more like the kindly Mrs. Gyumia, which is the name of the protagonist. First of all, gentlemen, please introduce yourselves. George, Peter. Uh, well, I'm George Dunn. I am um, currently I'm a special research fellow with the Center for Globalizing Humanity at uh, Zhejiang University, Hangzhou, China. I've uh, written extensively on philosophy and popular culture. The most recent book was a volume I edited with Jason Eberl on the philosophy of Jonathan Nolan, the director. This past summer, I taught a course on philosophy and film at the Renmin University of China in uh, Beijing. I'm also a great fan of Park Chan-wook, and I have to say that I think Lady Vengeance may very well be my favorite movie, not only by uh, Park Chan-wook, but perhaps my favorite movie of all time. So I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. Hello, my name is uh, Peter Paik. I am an HK professor of the humanities at uh, Yonsei University, Seoul. I have written four essays on South Korean film in recent years. I'm currently working on a fifth one, which deals with the recent movie Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho, which won the uh, Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. And I have published uh, articles on uh, Old Boy as well as Lady Vengeance. And my article on Lady Vengeance actually just came out this year in an edited collection called uh, Global Cinema Networks, which was published by Rutgers University Press. Currently, I'm working on a variety of topics. I just recently published an article on the novel The Leftovers, written by uh, Tom Parada, in which I argue that the novel stages the return of human sacrifice as a response to the breakdown of middle-class life in the United States. And my most recent project is an examination of the rise of anti-Christian sentiment in the West and where it might be leading. I think that in the past, of course, atheists have been always ready to say that they defend the Christian ethic. It's just that they don't want Christian superstition. But I think we've come to the point um, in many quarters in the West where now the point is to reject the Christian ethic. And so what might be the alternative and what does this mean you know, for believers? And I have to say, I've also been very deeply affected by Lady Vengeance. Certainly, it's my favorite among Pak Chan-wook's films. Perhaps it's my second favorite among South Korean films. I prefer Poetry by Yi Chang-dong, but certainly Lady Vengeance is a film that I always come back to. When I saw it, I could not believe where it was going two-thirds into the movie. And right when you think that it's brought up the prospect of something so terrible, and you wonder, well, can the film continue? And it actually does. So that's also something that is very much you know, worth discussing. I guess I'll give a short summary of the film, and please, gentlemen, join in if I'm missing uh, any particular detail that you'd like to focus on. But Lady Vengeance, or in Korean, it's Chinjaran Kumjashi, which means, as Titus pointed out, kind-hearted Kumja, opens with the release of the title character from a woman's prison after she has finished serving a 13-year sentence for the abduction and murder of a five-year-old boy. 
The film is actually done in voiceover. And of course, it's kind of interesting, as we'll see, the voice in the voiceover is speaking very fluent Korean without a trace of any foreign accent, like a native speaker. And as Kumjak comes out, she is greeted by a minister with a choir dressed in Santa outfits, right? So it's the uh, middle of winter and the Korean winters can be very brutal. She's not wearing any uh, winter clothes and she walks up to the group with a blank look on her face. Now, the custom in Korea for people leaving prison is that they're offered a plate of tofu, which they're supposed to eat plain as a sign that they will live henceforth a life free of crime. The whiteness of the tofu representing you know, moral purity. But what Kumja does is she knocks over the plate and shocks the minister as well as the choir. And it's interesting that in, in the film, she speaks to him using profanity, but that's actually not there in the Korean. In the original, she actually tells him, basically, you do well for yourself. Now, I think given the hierarchical relationship between parishioner and minister, and the fact that this hierarchy is reflected in the Korean language, you could say that it's basically the same thing as using profanity. Unfortunately, you lose in translation this kind of relatively innocuous statement that carries a very insulting charge. Peter, in the English version that I've watched, the subtitles are, go screw yourself. Yes. So, yes, so that's why so, for me. So do well for yourself was what is translated as go screw yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the original, there's no sexual innuendo. <laughs> it literally means mind your own business, uh -huh. right? But in Korea, it's very rude to tell people mind your own business. I mean, it's very confrontational. And it's not something that you would say to a teacher or a minister. So I think that's one of the subtleties of translating certainly Japanese and Korean cinema, you know, where you do have honorifics as part of the language. Going back to the film, she winds up linking up with different friends that she had met while in prison. And slowly, the story comes together. Kumja, when she was in high school, had become pregnant by a fellow classmate. Because her parents were divorced and she had no one to turn to, she threw herself on the mercy of a teacher who turns out to be a very shady character. They become lovers, and she gives birth to a daughter while living with the teacher. But the teacher comes up with a kidnapping scheme where he wants a boy from a wealthy family for the sake of receiving the ransom. But it turns out that instead of keeping the boy alive, the teacher, Mr. Beck, kills the child and then makes Kumja take the blame. And so that's how she winds up in prison. And what she has been doing in prison is to set up a network of people who will help her in her scheme for vengeance. What is really interesting, though, about how she cultivates these relationships is that she binds people to her by going out of her way to do extravagant favors, giving up her kidney for one woman you know, who is dying and saving her life. She also poisons the female prisoner who's at the top of the prison hierarchy and terrorizes everyone. And so she replaces her and becomes known as the witch. And because she's able to put people in her debt, and especially by rescuing the women who are being victimized by this really brutal and sadistic female prisoner, she winds up with a bunch of people who owe her favors. And in this case, they're willing to you know, really go out on a limb to help Kumja achieve her goal of getting revenge. And also, Kumja's daughter has been adopted, right? Mr. Beck had given the baby girl up for adoption, and she travels out to Australia to meet her and her very upset parents. But the girl makes Kumja bring her back to Seoul. There's an interesting way the plot unfolds because you have this parallel story of Kumja's plot being set in motion while she is bonding with her young daughter. And these two strands come together in sometimes violent ways, although Kumja never stops being a responsible parent during this whole time. 
Of course, the big turning point of the film comes when Kumja has finally imprisoned Mr. Beck, has him tied up and stuffed his mouth with a gag, ready to kill him, and then his phone goes off. Right? And when she looks on his phone, she notices that he has a bunch of small items tied to a chain, and she realizes that what these things are are trophies that he has taken from other children that he has gone on to kill. Right, so after killing the boy that he and Kumja kidnapped, right, he went on to kill four more children. She backs off on her plan for revenge, and working with the detective who had been the person on her case, they call the parents or the surviving relatives of the murdered children to offer them the chance to get their revenge. Maybe it's significant that the detective never really believed Kumja was guilty. Um, yes. But he understood that she was taking the blame for somebody else because she felt herself to be in some kind of danger. And so he perhaps feels a little bit of complicity in what happened as well. Yes, yes. indeed. He had to go on with the forms of the law, also for the young woman's sake, who was obviously hysterically intent on her purpose, even though he could prove between the two of them that she was innocent. And then Gumja finds out that there were these other children who were murdered. And she points out to him that he is guilty in a certain way too. He was the man who should have done justice and in failing to do so, he, like her, allowed this murder of further children that they didn't know about until then. They are bound by guilt. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, so the really gut-wrenching scene that happens in the film, which, again, is I've, I've never seen anything else like it in a film, is when the parents and the relatives are made to watch videos of their children being killed. The only point of comparison that I have is the Brothers Karamazov, you know, where Ivan Karamazov tells a story about a child who is torn apart by the dogs of a nobleman because he had injured a dog by accident and that his parents were forced to watch. This is part of his discourse where he says that um, even if God exists, he does not want to uh, have faith in such a God that allows such things to happen. And perhaps also um, another uh, work that came to mind was a Hecuba, which is also about the death of a child and the grieving parent then taking revenge on the murderer. Yeah, I would add to the tragedy of Euripides. In The Searchers, the plot is set in motion by the rape and murder of little girls. Mm. This is the future for us, generation, further human beings who are like us, of us in some sense. Take that away and we have nothing but our death to look forward to. And this seems to be the horrifying thing that's set up in the ending of the movie. This is a two-hour movie. Almost a quarter of it is the denouement. It is long, complicated, slow. It switches from muted sepia to colors and back. And it shows you that these people, the parents of the murdered children, have to do justice. This has become yeah. a personal problem. Had Gyumja just killed this guy when she had him in her hands, this would not have happened. Just like had Gyumja said, I'm free, I'm me, I have a daughter somewhere, run off and find that daughter, none of this would have happened. Yes. This well, could think... all have gone different ways. Yeah. When Gunja discovers that Beck has committed these other murders, she realizes at that point that she has to sacrifice her own revenge. She's actually spent 13 years plotting this revenge, putting all the pieces together, recruiting all of these Confederates. This has been her project for 13 years. And then she realizes that it is not her place to take revenge. That revenge belongs to the family. That's really quite remarkable because there's this momentum that has been building up over the course of the film. And then it's interrupted. 
Yes. Right? And then the families are brought in. Yes. And then there's not a trial, but, you know, some deliberation about how they're going to handle Beck, whether they're going to turn him over to the police or whether the families are going to take revenge themselves. And at this point, Guam Jha, from being the agent of revenge, steps back and becomes the enabler. Yeah, that shows why you need half more of an hour of the movie. As you said, Peter, she wants to kill him. She's got him there. She's got the gun designed for the purpose. She's ready, but she holds back. She tries. She can't get herself to do it. Something is wrong. Something is missing. And only later does she find out what's wrong. He was a murderer even beyond that child, Wormo, the first mm-hmm. of his victims. But she didn't know that in advance. She just realized that there is something wrong with her vengeance right at the moment when everything is perfectly theatrically set up for her to enact it. She was aware of a problem before she could see what it is. And that shows you that we're about to learn something more, that there is some important thing that has not been fully prepared. And so that suggests that the movie is in two parts. And that corresponds to the two communities in the movie. At the end, as we have said, there is a community that can do justice, the community of the parents of victims. In the beginning, and throughout most of the movie, there is another community, the community of the punished, the community of the people who have suffered justice because they are criminals. As you pointed out, Peter, Gyumja makes herself a master of all these other female prisoners and of various men who are appended to the women or to herself. She has an unusual power that she develops in prison that wasn't suspected at all before, and she becomes a ruler, but, as George aptly pointed out, she becomes a servant in the other community that can do justice, not only suffer it. And so there is a community of equals who do justice and a community of unequals where there is a master and everybody else serves. In prison, there is this terrible woman who abuses everybody and who seems to have risen to her rank by an unusual murder. She murdered her husband, she murdered his mistress and then ate them up as the police was watching her barbecuing and eating them. This horrifying act of cannibalism makes the woman feel like a god because she's acting like a beast. She Mm -hmm. has done something that is inhuman, eaten other people. She has violated what makes us human, which is tied up with our burial, our funerals, our fear of ourselves as dead. We do not wish human beings to be turned into food and excrement like other animals. Mm This is the first ruler, and Gyumja destroys her to take her place, and she becomes a different kind of ruler. She is not only feared, but in various ways loved, admired. She is helpful rather than destructive, but she exercises actually the same kind of mastery, since it is also based on who is willing to kill. Yes. And so the prison is the place where these strange things happen. One of them is the arrival of this ancient, horrifying cannibalism, Another one is the arrival of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Gyumja is apparently going to be redeemed by this priest. There's a guy there who is going to offer her Christ's salvation. She is not particularly interested in this because she has realized something very dangerous about Christianity. Christianity treats the murderer and his victim alike. And in doing so, it tempts people to become murderers since they can always apologize for it later. And indeed, Mm -hmm. as we know from Dostoevsky, even a murderer like Raskolnikov could find his way to heaven, maybe. You could have a change of conscience. Justice might not get to you, and if it does get to you, it might not destroy you anyway. 
you can get away with murder. But further, because it promises salvation to everyone, it does not prepare people to do the horrifying things that are required for justice. It makes therefore people weak when they should be strong enough to defend themselves against monsters. And uh, Gyumja is faced with both of these things. This ancient horrifying cannibalism and this attempt to overcome it through Christianity. And she thinks that neither is actually satisfying. She replaces the one, the cannibal witch, and impersonates the other, the priest's Christianity. And I think there is an intellectual argument for the attack on Christianity, which is this. The movie shows us, and just Gyumja understood, the priest has fallen in love with her. And to some extent, he's just trying to sublimate that erotic love through the promise of salvation in Christ, which also turns out to mean that the woman should obey him personally. Presumably, he might even want to marry her. But further, (laughs) he wants to absolve her of a murder she knows she did not commit. And therefore, to accuse her of an injustice she has not committed. That cannot Mm -hmm. be true religion. Yes, and Christianity, it's based on the renunciation of revenge. Right. right. And so if she does convert, it means that she cannot take her revenge. So this is further a level of irony where, in some sense, to be redeemed is not to bring uh, Mr. Beck to justice. You know, she has to stay unredeemed. She has to stay fallen in order for the second community right, of the grief-stricken to be able to come together and achieve some communion and catharsis. I think that's right, because if she had accepted the forgiveness extended to her through Christianity, I mean, she could only do that if she was to renounce her own right to revenge. And that's something that she is simply unwilling to do. It's interesting, she makes this observation when she's talking to her daughter, Jenny, and she's using Mr. Beck to translate between the two of them, because Jenny doesn't speak a word of Korean, Gunja doesn't speak any English, So she is holding a gun, Mr. Beck's head, forcing her to translate for mother and daughter. And at one point, she's explaining to her daughter why it is that she must kill Mr. Beck. And her reason is, he made me a sinner. Now, I'm not sure what it is in Korean, but to me, it was very, very striking that she uses that religious language, that language that comes out of Christian theology. He made me a sinner. And what kind of sinner did he make her? Well, at this point, she does not yet know about the other children who Beck killed. So it can only be that he made her a sinner by making her a bad mother. I thought it referred to the fact that she's been accessory to the murder of an innocent child. She was privy to the kidnapping. She was privy to the kidnapping, yeah. So I think that's part of it. But my sense is that for her, the more serious sin that she's responsible for is that in taking responsibility for this crime that she did not commit, she had to abandon her child. Yes, that is Um, certainly part of her self-understanding. She says that when I first felt you growing inside of me, I felt like a wallet getting fatter. Right. (laughs) There's a sense of prosperity, apparently, in making a new being. It is striking. It's unique. The only time she says anything about happiness. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. does seem she had to abandon her way of life and the new way of life made possible by prospecting Korea. But she was actually happy to become a mother. And all of it was taken Mm -hmm. away from her by this horrifying murder. So it's not simply that she took on the punishment that Beck actually deserved. But in doing that, she also incurred a guilt. And so I think that's what she means when she says, he made me a sinner. And so there's a sense in which Gunja and Beck have actually become doubles. There's been a transfer of guilt from him to her. 
And I think perhaps that's part of the reason why she can't accept forgiveness, why she cannot become a genuine Christian. That would require her to forgive the man who put her in this position in the first place. Yeah, that goes to the core of a very serious question. Is there any passion that will lead to justice? And if there is any such passion, does it have a public character? As we know from the ending of the movie, justice will only be done by those who have personally been brought to grief and therefore to guilt by the horrifying things that somebody else has done to them. Victims are they who install justice. Justice can only create equality among the mutilated. That is a very dangerous thought, but that is where the movie is going. Gyumja herself only became capable of this by experiencing this mutilation. Something was taken away from her, her life as a mother. And there is a moment in the film where the narrator, who speaks so rarely that it's always very interesting, says her daughter Jenny had a vision of the boy in whose murder she was accessory. One more. And the narrator says she would be scared, in a way shocked, if she knew this happened. She had been looking to say sorry. To ask for forgiveness. Now a Christian could look for forgiveness in heaven, but at the price of justice. Gumja won't do that, and so she has no access to Wonmo. Her daughter does instead, strangely enough, and her daughter seems to be like herself. Gumja just wants to see her daughter to know that she is real, to ask for forgiveness and to go away. But the daughter won't let that be. The daughter says, I will kill myself and puts a knife to her throat unless you take me with you. And her Australian step-parents, who seem to be good, decent people, just say, oh, oh my God. Uh, of yeah. course you're going to have to let her do it. The girl has her way because she is like Gumja. And that turns out to be because she's begun to hate life because she has no mother. She knows she's adopted because she's Korean and her parents are white Australians. Mm -hmm. And she has taken that adoption to be something like an original abandonment. Yes. And her hatred of this fact is going to lead her into great dangers, which are treated dramatically as her education at the hands of her mother. She's taken as a prisoner briefly and sees her mother shoot a guy point-blank range to save her from her abductor. This girl, in a certain sense, is not innocent anymore, and she has to see part of this process of justice and violence in order to come back to any kind of normality. That is a strange, dangerous thought. You know, why would people have abandoned justice in the first place that leads to the crisis in this movie? It's because they would never have wanted to show their children such wickedness, such evil, to tell them about the violence and the taint of blood. But it turns out to be inevitable in one way. And yeah. Jenja at least shows Jenny this is what it's like when you do justice. Yeah, and I guess I just want to backtrack a little bit because I think you brought up a lot of very complicated issues. And I guess one thing that I would like to point out is that even if there doesn't seem to be forgiveness for Kumja, she does not want to forgive Mr. Beck, but then the ghost of Wanmo does not forgive her, mm -hmm. right? So in some sense, she is squeezed out of the symbolic circuit that forgiveness tries to set up. In the, yet in the film, we have the element of grace intervening, I think, at decisive moments. I think when Kunja hesitates before killing Beck, because she doesn't somehow sense that the moment is right, even though everything has gone according to plan, I think that's also a moment of grace. Right? It's this point where, for some reason, she stops, and because she stops, she was able to make the discovery you know, that she does. Right? The ghost of Wanmo also, as much as he refuses to forgive Kunja, nevertheless, he brings the daughter and mother together at the end. So even though um, it seems to be a world that in many ways um, is, you could also say abandoned, 
there is a kind of mysterious supernatural force still at work within it that helps to create a certain kind of order by the end of the film. Yeah, so one way to look at it is what we believe in modern government. There is a way of life that's governed by a power that's legislative, a power that's executive, and a power that's judiciary. That's the modern way of life. Gyumja is obviously both an executive and a judiciary. She becomes a ruler, jail, and enacts her plan out in democratic Korea, but she also is a judge. She administers justice in the modern way, such that there is a kind of jury of executioners, democratically. The victims mm -hmm. of the families themselves have to decide on how they will deal with the issue of justice. But the question then is, who made these laws that she is executing and administering judicially? Those laws were not made by her, and those laws turn out ultimately to be holy, mm -hmm. partly because they deal with the most obvious thing beyond merely human powers. They deal with life and death. Mm -hmm. But partly because they involve this question of justice. What will complete the limits of human justice? Bad guys get away with it. Innocent people are victimized or blamed. How are you going to go beyond that to rescue in any sense justice? That will take you back to holy law. And there's a signal in that because it's both the parents who are victims who do justice and also this police detective who from the beginning knew Gumja is not guilty here. Law is involved in this, justice is involved in this, and it has to be a secret, but it has to be a secret that is publicized, at least in the element of poetry. All of us have to become complicit in this secret that's fictitious, but it is fundamentally true. What happens if people no longer punish the guilty? If we were to become so much about forgiveness that the guilty would never be punished? What then? And so that escapes merely human terms. At that point, you come to this other matter that deals with holy law, the grounding of all justice. And mm -hmm. that suggests that, at least in a negative way, you can understand what the point is. You cannot let the killer get away with killing. And so maybe the problem with Christianity is that it comes too soon or too easily. It tells you forgive. But that cannot be the first thing you tell somebody, since you cannot ask somebody to forgive if he has not first been violated by injustice. What have you to forgive if you have not been hurt? So Christianity must come as a corrective. It cannot be an edification. There must be a law that edifies people in the first place. How did Gumja know in prison at 19 to concoct this plan? Well, she must have had unusual powers, but she also must have had this common thing in common with everybody else, that she knows that vengeance is justice. Tit mm -hmm. for tat. This is what yeah. guides her to become a ruler. Tit for tat is also mm -hmm. when she saves other people who come into her debt by that act. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I was just thinking about Plato's dialogue, Crito, where Socrates insists that justice is not to repay injury with injury. And he finds it absolutely impossible to persuade Crito of this. So then he changes his tune. He impersonates the laws of Athens and gives this speech, which is precisely about repaying injury with injury. And Crito accepts that because Crito is a public man. Socrates is a private man. And as a private man, it's possible for Socrates to live by this ethic of non-retaliation. But it is absolutely impossible for that to become the principle by which a city governs itself. 
And it's only within the context of a city, which is governed by this principle of retaliation, that someone like Socrates is in a position to renounce private revenge. So I think you're absolutely right about that. But Peter, I was very struck by your use of the word grace, because that's a word that I hadn't really associated with the events of this film. But now that you bring it up, I think you're absolutely right. To me, the ending of the movie, which I think is just beautiful, one of the most moving endings of a movie I've ever seen. And it ends on this note of grace, because we're told that Guimja had not been able to achieve the redemption that she desired. She couldn't receive it through forgiveness for reasons we've already discussed. And she didn't receive it through revenge either, because she had to renounce her revenge. It's important to recognize what a sacrifice that was for Glumjian, because this is something she had been planning for 13 years. And then she steps back when she realizes that actually this is the responsibility of the family, not hers. And she doesn't receive forgiveness from one moment. Here she is, she's running down the street in the snow, and then she runs into her daughter, and they embrace. As I understand it, the snow is a mechanism of repristinization. The snow is white. The snow is pure. The snow falls, covers up the sinful, sordid past. and makes it possible for there to be a new beginning. And this new beginning is represented by Jenny. So in a sense, that's the only redemption that is available to Guamja. Not forgiveness, not revenge, but the fact that she becomes a mother. And there's this other individual, Jenny, who is now in the world, who has the possibility of, as Guamja says, being white, being pure. Even though it turns out that Jenny's existence in some way depends upon these horrible events that have occurred. And yet, all of that can retreat into the past. So we have this new beginning. And I think it's significant, and I think you alluded to this at the beginning of our discussion, Peter, that we learn at the very end who the narrator of all of this has been. It's Jenny, as you said, speaking in fluent Korean. Not sure exactly how that happened. She's had an American accent <laughs> up to this point. But it's through Jenny that the possibility of a kind of redemption is present. The redemption that is living on through a new life. Yeah. That has been soiled. Because the stain that is present on Guamja, that can never be removed. So all we can have is the possibility of a new life. Yeah. And the white of the snow replaces the white of the tofu in the beginning. Mm -hmm. This is one kind of purity that... Gumja can accept and indeed it has to do with her daughter who on the one hand is the narrator and privy to some things that the rest of us aren't but in another sense is also the recipient of her mother's confession. Gumja feels the need to say the truth to her daughter indeed through the medium of this guilty monster who is also a teacher of English, Mr. Beck. Why is he the apt medium? Why can he translate? It's because there's no going back for Gyumja herself, and what she has to say is a terrifyingly ugly thing. And her daughter yes. has to learn that. She could not learn that from a decent person who doesn't know about this whole murder business. That suggests that the translator is really important. This is a problem for the movie as such. We are told in the beginning of the movie, when we are shown the TV-like presentation of the shock of this murder of the young boy, Wonmo, we are told that the polka dot skirts came in fashion that year because the murderers alleged wore them. This happens in modern societies, it's true. People started dressing like Bonnie and Clyde or whatever when those horrifying things were happening. But also we are told that some movie maker tried to make a movie about this beautiful, beautiful murderess. 
and that there was a <laughs> public backlash that prevented this from happening. But of course, that was back then. When Jenny is supposed to tell the story, that will be the future. She is an old woman by her voice. And in between, it's 2005 when this was made. And it's another kind of thing because it is not factual. It is only in the element of fiction that we can tell these kinds of truths. That seems to be a necessary removal. Had Park Chan-wook tried to use a real case to talk about that, this may indeed have gone in a very different direction. In that case, you could not have taken the necessary liberties and you could not have achieved the necessary distance from events. And perhaps you would not have seen the tragic truths you have to see because it would have been too close. Fiction has to bring this necessary distance that also at the same time reveals an entire situation. It is not just a particular event. It is not just one horrifying thing. It is a more dangerous thought than that because it involves us all. I'm not Korean, neither yes. is George. We're not involved in any of this thing at any level whatsoever. And yet when you watch this movie, it moves you. It terrifies and it relieves at the end. And that seems to have to do with what it reveals about being human. There's a moment early in the movie when Gumja explains to the Protestant priest that she converted to Buddhism in jail. She shows him the way of Dhamma. The way of Dhamma turns out to be the blueprint, rather, the pattern of a gun. How could that be? Especially in California, we believe that Buddhism is about being copacetic, being stoned all the time. But what if it tells you that if you're willing to do the time, you might as well do the crime? Yeah. This seems to be what she needs to learn because she needs revenge. Although, as we pointed out, she has to give up revenge for something else because even she needs hope in the future. And that seems to be the split in Gumja. On the one hand, she is the agent of justice. Without her, none of this would be happening. The murderer would have gotten away with it, maybe kept doing it, and that would have been horror, an unseen taint on South Korea. But in another sense, she's a mother, and the two things were from the beginning only accidentally put together. She was a young teenager, she was a child of a divorced family, and she was confused. We are told about her in the beginning that she turned every head, but that she herself was not particular. She did not know the value of her beauty to reject suitors, that is to say. She just had sex with somebody, whoever. She was careless, and that seems to be because she had daddy issues. She was the product of a broken home, and she couldn't return to her family, so she ran away. And presumably her choice of this lascivious teacher who made the sexual overtures to her is also tied up with her daddy issues. Her willingness to obey him in helping kidnap this child, one more, is also tied up with that. But that was one part of her. Then there is this other part of her where she exhibits joy that she became a mother. She became a real human being in a certain sense, and all that was taken away from her. And so there is a part of her that is open to eroticism and to new life in a child, and there is a part of her that is all tied up with death and vengeance. And that would seem to reproduce in an inverse way our modern way of living, where everybody is all about their desires and freedom all the time, and nobody is about doing justice almost ever. She's the opposite of who we are in that sense, but reproduces our own confusion and our own split. Giving birth is not a political act. Dying can be a political act, as we see with the killing this group of parents who were victimized by Mr. Beck commits. And on the other hand, birth is not. It just happens. But it also seems to be the dawning of hope, mm -hmm. because it includes the possibility that being human could be good. The problem with 
killing politically, with doing justice, that is to say, in the harshest sense, is that it can never restore you. It can never make you unmutilated. The mutilation right. is forever. Whereas mm. birth is tied to the good in a way in which killing can only be tied to the just. And so Gumja is not accidentally drawn to her daughter. She puts her plan on hold and just leaves for Australia to find this girl. Before that, she has sex with this young boy who's obviously in love with her, who's the age she was when she went to jail and you know, might remind her of those days of purity when she was in high school and had sex with a guy like that and accidentally became pregnant. Eroticism and her daughter are tied up together because they're the possibility that being human is good. Mm -hmm. Not merely yeah. that you can return wrong for wrong, do tit for tat, and in this violence at least avenge yourself. Now that she's free, that speaks to her. Perhaps the only reason she concocted the plan in the first place is because that possibility was foreclosed for her. Now mm -hmm. that it's open, she has other ideas and this indeed puts her in danger. At some point her daughter is briefly kidnapped and almost in danger of her life at that point. Yeah. She herself almost killed. There are enormous risks involved and the daughter has to see the mother murder a man. You cannot put these two halves of her together, actually, and maybe we cannot do it in our own cases, or else we might not be so shocked by the horrifying things that happen in our societies. Either they wouldn't happen, or we wouldn't be shocked by them, but either way, we would not be split in the way that we are. An important part of the movie is that things keep happening that you do not see coming. Why don't we see it coming? Well, it's not just that we're not privy to what was in the mind of the writer, but if he's right about our society, then maybe there are problems that we are not aware of. There is a split between past and future in this movie. Before, Gumja was imprisoned and afterwards. In this period, Korea transformed into a blooming, rich, prosperous democracy. And there's a future Korea and there's a past Korea. And the only connections between them seem to be Gumja and the murderer and the policeman. And from the point of view of the murderer, it's all great. He keeps killing kids, keeps getting money, lives the life that he wants. He abuses people in a terrifying way. And, and saving worse, up for a yacht? Yeah, like he's saving up for a yacht. is going to be a man of luxury. Perhaps the most terrifying thing is twofold. On one hand, he exacts consent. He rapes women like his wife with approval, as we imagine he must have done to Gumja. And on the other hand, he gets ransoms. He gets people to consent to the violence he does to them in some strange way. He's literally paid for killing children. It's not the way you might think about it, but that's exactly what happens. And the future of Korea is great for him. How about all these families that are brought up at the end? Apparently they disappeared because some of them ran away from Korea and some of them killed themselves in desperation for losing these only children. Some of them made terrible sacrifices as working class people just to put their kids through school and, and then, you know, that kid ended up murdered by this monster. That's past Korea. That was the Korea where people worked hard and suffered everything imaginable to deliver this great future ahead but this great future ahead turns out not to be great for them. And as you pointed out to me, Peter, it's a future without children. Yes, I mean, the birth rate is one of the lowest in the world, far below replacement. Of course, there's the irony that um, when South Korea was very poor and uh, people were struggling, the war had killed 10% of the population. Nevertheless, back in those days, people were still having large families, right? It was quite normal, right, and common for people to get married. But now South Korea is a society where people are putting their lives on hold are very reluctant to have children unless they feel that they can provide everything for them. And of course, providing everything for them means sending them to the kind of cram schools where Mr. Beck teaches. 
So the image of the good life itself is what deters people from actually producing life. The desire for the good life has the effect of producing sterility in the population. The desire for the good life turns us against life. Something similar is happening in China. As you know, the one-child policy was reversed a few years ago. But families are still only having one child, simply because of the cost of having a child. And not simply the cost of feeding and clothing and housing the child, but also to provide the child with all of those advantages thought to be needed in order to succeed in today's society. So China is also facing kind of a demographic crisis, similar to what is being experienced in Korea and Japan and some other East Asian countries. Peter, early on, you you mentioned that there are two parallel plots in the movie, the revenge plot and the story of Guangzhou being reunited with and bonding with Jenny. One of the things that's striking to me is that the revenge plot is all about this theme of reciprocity. We see Kwamja commit these acts of kindness, but they're really just a way of accruing debts that she can later cash in. So that is how she's able to build these alliances that she's able to use later through this kind of demand for reciprocity. And then, of course, vengeance is another kind of reciprocity. And so the evil that you've done to me, I will do to you. But the relationship between the parent and child is not about reciprocity at all. It has more in common with the word you used earlier, grace. What the parent does for the child is pure gift, enabling a new life that will continue and that will come to its fullest fruition, perhaps even after the parent has died. So it's interesting that you have these two plots running parallel, as you said, Peter. One has to do with reciprocity. But the other has to do with something that transcends that reciprocal relationship and that involves openness to the future and openness to novelty that can never really be present within a relationship premised entirely on reciprocity. Yeah, that is indeed true. And it seems to point to these two different communities and two different possibilities. You could say that what happens in jail is Gumja proves the point of politics as described in antiquity. It might not be different from a gang of thieves. Gumja literally creates a gang of thieves. And of course, murders, adulterers, the crimes vary, but she helps various kinds of criminals, including by killing. And therefore, she ends up the chief criminal among this gang of criminals. She has to embrace her criminality in order to indebt everyone to her, in order to achieve what she wants. She becomes the ruler of a community that serves her purpose, and she does get to the point where she could actually get it. She could have the vengeance she seeks. But then she has this moment of doubt, about two-thirds or a bit more than that through the movie. You have everything you want, lady. Why not just do it? There's this other problem. There's this interruption in her plan, the emergence of her daughter. And this is ultimately to the good, but not entirely or initially to the good. Her plan is incredibly elaborate, like the blueprint for her gun. And it shows the pride of her mind. She's an intelligent woman who can read people, who can understand, therefore, how people work. Are they good? Are they bad? What do they want out of life? These things don't matter. What matters is how do they work and, therefore, how you can exploit them. And she does. She's marvelous at it. And you see that it has made her callous. It has made her into a femme fatale. She dresses like one, looks like one, and she's just drop-dead gorgeous. But it has also made her, in certain ways, dislike herself. There's obviously something inside of her that's yearning, and not for revenge. For one, as I said, she has sex with a young man who's stupidly, hopelessly in love with her, and for another, she goes after her daughter. 
This brings something else out of her that is not her mind that has to do with the immediacy of body and the hope, as we put it, in terms of grace, that there is a good future, that being human is not terrible, that it's a good thing to be human. The introduction, however, of her daughter softens her too much. It weakens her plan. The love she has for her daughter on the one hand and the pride she has in her intelligence on the other hand cause her to underestimate the persistence of malice and the necessity for violence. This Christian priest that she snubs easily turns out not to be so stupid or weak after all. He follows her around, he takes pictures, he sees her with this woman. She finds out who the woman's husband is and that's how he goes to Mr. Beck and sells the information to him. This again goes to the criticism Park Chan-wook makes of Christianity. If you're saying forgive everybody, you're saying that you're taking the side of the murderer against his victim. They can all go to heaven together, I guess. That's how this Christian priest serves in the end an evil man. The evil man quickly gets some hoodlums to help him defend himself, beats the daylights out of one woman and out of the other vicariously, and now this plan is about to fail. Gumja succeeds by feigning weakness and murdering the people who attack her and her daughter, and Mr. Beck is destroyed by his arrogance. Being sure that he has disposed of these women, he does eat the food that sedates him and makes him weak and vulnerable. But for a while we see both the intelligence and the love in her heart as a mother for her daughter weaken Gumja, and she ignores the importance of malice in the case of the priest and the violence in the case of what Mr. Beck summons to defend him in those hooligans. And that almost destroys her. But these things don't seem to be accidental. It's not that had she planned even harder. The point is that you have to somehow deal with that. How is it possible for men to be so wicked, so malicious, so violent, do so much evil? The notion that you can kill this guy, that's not going to put an end to it. And that would seem to suggest that there is a difference between experience and pattern, like the pattern of the gun or the pattern of the plan that is gradually revealed. Experience creates a break in that pattern. And experience also therefore divides what we understand as right or justice. The pattern of right is obvious, it's tit for tat. You have to kill the killer, in the words of Genesis 8. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. But there's not just the pattern of right, which is simple, tit for tat, equal for equal, like for like. There's the experience of right. What is it like as we see Gumja with a pistol in the eye of this Mr. Beck? She doesn't want to do it. When she comes to the experience, extracting justice, exacting justice, she doesn't want to do it. Somehow it's not enough. What's interesting, when she first acquires the gun, she remarks that it's pretty. And she says everything has to be pretty. So clearly she had certain expectations about what she would experience when she uses this gun. There would be something pleasing about that. And I think maybe that accounts for her hesitation. Exactly. At no point did it become the pleasing experience, the pretty experience that she had anticipated. Yes, justice before it became a woman with this antique gun in the face of a guy who is a monster. Justice before that was a story she told herself. She ran this scenario in her mind. It should be satisfying. It should be beautiful. Justice primarily is poetic justice. Getting what we deserve. And of course, the bad should get what they deserve. And that's very important to her. And if you will allow a joke, she gets out of jail. She is offered plain tofu. I do not eat tofu, but I assume it's hardly digestible. But she's a confectionery chef. She makes exquisite cakes. 
And indeed, at the end, there is the mm -hmm. eating of one of these exquisite chocolate cakes. Now, that is a luxury. It's not plain tofu. She wants something else and something more. There's a question about the character of this dessert. When you have a delicious cake, that would seem to be fully identifying the good with the pleasant. Whereas the cleanliness or the cleansing of the tofu would seem to identify fully the good with the useful against the pleasant. That's what she rejects. One of her seduced partners in her conspiracy is the man who gives her a job as a confectionery chef, who was a loser, mutilated by an accident, who ended up teaching women in prison how to make desserts. And he says that Gumja managed to make out of the disgusting ingredients given to prisoners a cake fit for a king. In a way, that makes sense because Gumja is a natural king. She is a ruler. But in another sense, it points to this question, what can you make out of terrible ingredients? And from Gumja's point of view, it's not enough. Her community of criminals who have suffered justice and who will get revenge is not enough. There is this other community that is necessary. She never shares a cake with her fellow criminals, only with the community of the equals who do justice in murdering a murderer. It's interesting in that final scene how when she brings up the chocolate cake, they turn off the lights, there are birthday candles on the cake, and they start singing the happy birthday song. And then when they taste the cake, you know, you can see how much they enjoy it. And again, I mean, these people have been through so much, and it feels pretty strange to have them on screen for that long, right? Not only do they take turns stabbing Mr. Beck, they then get together and clean up all the blood, put everything away very nicely, bury him, and then drive to the bakery and enjoy this treat. There seems this moment of communion. You know, after they eat their cake, they then think about their children. And you can see this weird moment where it's almost as though everyone at the table is seeing something, right? They're all completely lost in thought. They're in this very strange zone between waking and dreaming. Like everyone is in this trance that they don't want to leave. Right? And it's only when the proceedings are interrupted by Kumja's young lover that suddenly everyone is shocked and they just hurry outside of the bakery. Right? They don't want to be seen together. Ordinary life takes over. But for that one brief moment, they have this moment of transcendence. In some sense, their grief becomes something else just for that brief time. That's a very good point, and that, I think, is the clearest example of grace in the movie. Mm -hmm. It has to be prepared by justice. Only punitive justice can give people that kind of peace. But it itself is not enough. You'd think, they've done the deed. It's over. It's gone. Let's get back to our protagonist or whatever we're going to do to wrap this up. But no, Parchan Wook tells us it's not over. These people, in a certain way, are bound. And only because they all share this experience, only they know what it means to have suffered in this way and to be relieved in this way. To me, it brought to mind the point that René Gillard makes about how violence and hostility can bring us together. Because before the killing, they're kind of chaotic, squabbling, they're at odds with each other in various ways. Yes. But immediately after the killing, we see them cooperating in this orderly manner to clean up the scene, and then they sit around the table, they sing Happy Birthday, which I think is significant. And it's a kind of rebirth for them, right? For them, it's a new beginning and a kind of peace. Although Glumja is kind of outside that peace. So she hasn't yet achieved any kind of redemption. But the parents, they're ready to move on. Indeed, that shows that Glumja in a way is different. Her child was not murdered. 
she's accepted by these people among them like the detective is accepted who gives them instructions on how to stab so that they can be saved themselves while inflicting harm that's a necessity this is punitive justice which requires both gomja and the detective to act in order to help all these people achieve the punishment they need before they can have any grace before their grief can in any way be purified this of course is a horrifying thing to say to modern people we always grieve after every horrifying thing that happens and then we're supposed to go home and forget about it what happens to the people who are more directly involved than through a television set they might not simply be able to go home and forget about it and therapy might not cut it there is some part of anger and of guilt involved in grief and that might require punishment that is to say justice that is to say as you put it george we need violence to bring us together some problems can only be solved politically since there is no bringing back the dead and therefore yes. the happy birthday song is somewhat conventional not entirely obvious just like the killing itself one couple who goes together is a father and his daughter they are not married there's another couple who's divorced this is the modern world people divorce of course the husband complains about it in the beginning but then when he gets out his bottle to drink to screw his courage to the sticking place he offers her a drink first although they're divorced and she just drinks all of it because she doesn't need the liquid courage apparently they are brought together in a strange way by this presumably they divorced because their child was murdered there's another couple where the husband says i will volunteer to do the killing my wife has a weak heart she can't do it and then it turns out that the wife is the one who wants the revenge and she goes killing in his place but the couple doesn't go there together it's not exact it's not tit for tat in the sense you might imagine it person who asks why did this guy want to kidnap our children why do you want the money does he have a child of his own which brings up the possibility wouldn't tit for tat mean murdering his child instead of murdering him happily he is sterile we are told he has no children he is not involved in that way in the future and therefore they murder him instead but that's not tit for tat he didn't murder them he murdered their children tit for tat cannot be precise yes the reason why i think the parents get you know nonplussed by learning that he does not have children is that in korean culture particularly among people of this generation the only reason why you would do something terrible is for your kid the idea that you would do something terrible just for selfish gain just for yourself is unimaginable right so beck does represent a kind of radical evil i think for a korean audience watching the family members scuttle off into the darkness it's actually a very dark and sad image given the importance of family and having children in Korean society you know in spite of how modern it's become for Korean audiences these people would be in a state of living death i mean they've lost their future and so the moment in which they're able to enjoy this communion is a high point but really nothing has been settled the only way that they can really live in Korean society is not as participants but as bystanders because they do not have children i mean it's still a kind of a conservative society in that way One of the interesting things about the film is that even though Kumja is the cause of the deaths of all their children, they never get angry at her. And I think the reason for that is that they would have done exactly the same thing if given the same choice that Kumja had been given. They would have saved their child if it meant that four other children, you know, would have died. Their anger is already disarmed. They can direct all their anger at Mr. Beck, but not really at Kumja because they can't blame her for doing what they would have found, you know, logical and natural. Yeah, that's a very important point. We all love our own first. There is no public passion that will defend justice or the laws. We have to get to that. Indeed, Kumja insists on this. 
the group, as soon as they decide on murder, they ask, well, what if somebody tells our terrible secret? So we have to all be in it together so that nobody can tell. But Gumjap says, look at me. I have gone through jail, killed people. I have orchestrated all this place. Should anybody even consider backsliding? And I won't say any more. You need a superior agent of justice too. It is not enough to be in it together. Somebody has to be fully dedicated to this in a somewhat more abstract way than everybody else, as pointed out by the fact that her daughter is still alive. She didn't lose in the way they did, but she's a necessary addition to the equality of victims. Precisely because, as you said, everybody would protect their own first. Everybody wants to do best for themselves. And indeed, that brings us to the murderer. Mr. Beck, he only cares about himself. Love of one's own is pure, you would say, in his case, and that's what makes him a monster. He's willing to destroy anything. He kills the first child simply out of annoyance. That shows a horrifying individualism, saying that whatever annoys me is a problem. I'm not going to put up with anything. And we see him one day sitting at the table with his new wife, he gets up from the table, and he rapes her. Why? Well, it turns out to be habitual, because whenever he has a desire, he wants to satisfy it. Everybody else has to live with the fact that desires cannot be satisfied. Mm -hmm. Not him. He would seem to be, in a way, a perfection of modern society. Whatever you want, you can have it. That's freedom, getting what you want, not taking no for an answer, in the most ugly, horrifying way. And he seems to be the ugly side of Korean modernization. He is a teacher of English. Why do Koreans need to learn English? Because it's the modern economy, it's modernization. You need to be part of this new world. Strange, but it's the new normal, as we say. But also, he is presented as a Wall Street businessman. In suits, always in these big white suspenders, like you'd see in the Oliver Stone movie Wall Street, or the Tom Wolfe novel, Bonfire of the Vanities, that kind of presentation. He's a foreign thing. It's the ugliest part of what came to Korea with modernization. Many good things came, but also a terrifying thing came. And that seems to be part of the story, and it is these creatures who come out of the older Korea, the parents of the murdered children, and Gumja herself, who was in prison while Korea reached this status of incredibly rich, incredibly prosperous, modernized technological society. They are the ones who come back to do justice. And this was what put me in mind of Orestea of Aeschylus as a comparison for this trilogy of vengeance. They are the kindly ones. They are the horrifying furies who do violence, who do justice in the case of those who do not have family to avenge them anymore. And they are also the kindly ones. They are the ones who have to become docile in a certain way to become the justice of a political community, not simply wanton, wrathful murder. They all come out of the past in a certain strange way because they are a necessary prop to justice in a society, even if the society doesn't realize it. Peter, you mentioned something I think is significant, that the parents don't seem to blame Kwamja, although she is at least indirectly responsible. One way of thinking about Kwamja is that she's a victim of what some philosophers have called bad moral luck. The view that most of us in the West hold, we're blameworthy only for our own actions, or even only for what we intended to do. Clearly, she did not intend for anyone else's child to die. But here we have a case where she incurs guilt or blame for things that are simply outside of her control. She was not the one who killed these children. She enabled it, but she didn't realize it. there was no way that she could foresee the consequences of her actions. The parents, perhaps they recognize that Guamja really is a victim of bad moral luck. But Guamja cannot see herself in that same light. 
I read your paper on Lady Vengeance, and one point that you make is that Blamja does not make excuses for herself. If she did, I think it would be harder for us to forgive her if she said, look, I'm not responsible for what Beck does, it's not my doing, and so I can't assume any of the blame. I think if she had taken that view, then in a sense we would have to regard her as despicable. But it's because she does take the responsibility that it is possible to forgive her. Yes, I mean, she takes responsibility for what is not, according to rational terms, her responsibility. You you could say that it's excessive. Mm -hmm. Yep, and you see the families of the victims talk about their own troubles, which go beyond having lost a child. One of them says, somebody in my family killed himself. Why would you commit suicide over losing a child? It's not your fault. What if it is your fault in some other way and you blame yourself? Then you do that. Another one ran away from the country because guilt is guilt in Korea for Koreans, but in other place you might be able to escape it in some way, make up some new life. Turns out that guilt goes beyond what you can think of as your own intentions. Yeah. And then there are two forms of it. One of them is these people who self-destruct them. And indeed, I believe that is what is symbolized in the fact that Gyeongja's own daughter was sent to an orphanage and then to Australia. She's free from Korea in that sense, although, as Peter and George, both of you have pointed out, she does learn Korean. In some way, she becomes tied to her mother and to her country. And I assume that's why she tells the story. That would be ultimately the moral justification of it. But then there is this other version, as we see with Jenny, so also with her mother. Gyeongja does not self-destruct out of a sense of guilt. She decides to pursue justice. And that would seem to be what is required for people to keep their sanity in face of horrors. That is to say, bad things that follow as consequences of our actions, but not our intentions. If we have not willed evil, why should evil come? If it does come, how are we even to understand it, much less deal with it? This seems to be the problem that is faced in Gyeongja and that she alone can solve, but not alone. She is the only one who can solve it, but she needs her community, all these other people to be involved, both as civilians and the detective. She doesn't need it for practical purposes. She figured it all out by herself. But after she has figured it out, she involves all these people for moral reasons. They need to be a community law in a more fundamental sense than one's own will has to be installed again in Korea. And that would seem to be the only reason to have told the story in the first place. Why make it all up? If it's supposed to be a secret between about nine people, why should everybody else be involved, much less internationally? It's because justice is fundamentally a necessity for everybody. But of course, it's Jenny who's telling us the story. Uh Why is Jenny telling the story? Is it because she wants to persuade us of some truth about the necessity of justice? Perhaps. But it could also be part of Guamja's redemption. So the story is being told by Jenny when Jenny is an adult, perhaps quite old. Guamja is dead. And she's finished her life without finding that redemption. We're told that by Jenny. Yes. Yes. And yet her story is being memorialized. Perhaps we can see that as a kind of redemption. That Jenny a product of these events, who owes her existence to the very mistakes Gwamja tried to atone for and was unable to. Jenny is the one who tells this story and makes it possible for us to see Gwamja as someone who is forgivable. I mean, that's the significance of Jenny's narration, that the redemption that is impossible for Gwamja within the story becomes possible posthumously for her in the telling of the story. Yeah, 
that is indeed the least obvious part of the movie. You hear the narrator's voice, you don't know who that is. You only find out later. In fact, it's the last thing you find out. And indeed, as you pointed out, George, the last thing you need to fit in the puzzle. That something more is required than what Gunja can actually do because she is herself trapped to an extent in the experience. To some extent, you need to go beyond that, it would seem, to achieve anything like grace, anything like redemption. To clarify something that wasn't clear at the time. This young daughter brought up in Australia, somehow came back to Korea, eventually told this story. That is a hopeful future for Korea. It is not just the terrible things that have happened. Korea has modernized, rich, successful, in a way things are great. In another way, people hate themselves and don't want children. It's a terrible predicament. The modernization that was supposed to serve the natural desire for family has replaced it. But perhaps there is a hopeful future, which is what Jenny, the old Jenny, the wiser Jenny, has realized. She looks back on her past and on her mother in a sort of loving way. And I think that that's also something that Koreans who are alive today could also do, you know, when it comes to thinking about their grandparents or further back, their experience of the Korean War, for example. That people were placed in terrible dilemmas and had to do terrible things, you know, for the sake of the survival or for the future. And what Pak chan kind of does in Old Boy and Lady Vengeance is to take actually the experience of wartime catastrophe and then put it in a different package, you know, which is no longer historical, but more philosophical. It takes the form of a philosophical puzzle. But I think what he is really fascinated by is the effect of a cataclysmic history and how can we continue in some sense to experience it, that even as awful as it was, it was also in some sense generative, right? And perhaps that is what might enable us to have any kind of basis for hope, you know, in the modern age. That's a great point that the 20th century was catastrophic. In some way, learning is also necessary to deal with what it means to be human. And we need some kind of storytelling and some kind of reflection on being human that can face up to the catastrophes and come to the conclusion, if it is plausible, that it's worthwhile being human. The need for tragedy is obvious and urgent again for Park Chan-wook in a way it might not have been in the 19th century or the 18th. Well, I think the fact of children to use uh, Hannah Arendt's word, the fact of natality means that whatever horrors have been experienced, whatever horrors we undergo, whatever terrible things we're forced to do over the course of our lives, that it's possible for something positive to come out of that. And I think that for me, that's ultimately the lesson of this movie. When I watched the movie again a couple nights ago, I made a point of watching it not as a story about Gonzalo, but as a story about Jenny discovering who she is. There's a scene where Gwamja and her lover and Jenny and the dog they just purchased are in the car, driving out to where Gwamja is going to consummate her plan of revenge. Jenny is sitting in the back seat, and she's singing this little musical theme that we hear throughout the movie. She's singing, I have no friends, no mother. Can you tell me who I am? Where am I from? Who am I? And the movie is her discovering the answers to that. Who is she? She is the product of these horrific events. And she comes to understand that about herself. And yet she's able to narrate these events and end by declaring that despite everything, she likes Miss Guanja. Not just she loves her. You know, she's her mother. There's an obligation to love her. But beyond that, she likes her. And so it ends on that note of affirmation. 
this woman to whom these terrible things happened and who committed these terrible deeds that define who Jenny was. I mean, this is Jenny's past. And she's able to affirm that despite of all the horrors. That's a very good point. How do you live down a terrible past? And that, I think, accounts for part of the grace notes in the story. Mm -hmm. Strange to say that for all the terrible things we have said, this is sometimes comical and altogether, in a qualified way, a hopeful movie. Indeed, I think Georgia Wright, it has to do with the daughter. It has to do with Jenny. The first time we see her on screen, before you even know exactly who she is, she's staring at the clouds in the Australian outback, and instead of seeing cloud shapes or what have you, just sees a message in the clouds saying, you've no mother. That's her self-understanding, and the clouds are never going to answer that for her. It's only human things, it's only her own mother and her own drama that can answer that for her. But so far as we had seen by that point, the answer would be terrifying, and not something you'd want to tell a 13-year-old in the first place. But we may be wrong about it, in part. At least that's what Park Chan-wook seems to suggest. This girl does need to learn, in a gradual way maybe, not too early maybe, but she does have to learn those things in order to be a fully human being and to no longer hate herself for that thing. You've no mother. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me for this conversation. I'm glad to have the opportunity to follow up Old Boy with Lady Vengeance. These are superb movies. We have every reason to hope that in decades to come they will be even more popular than they are now. And one day they will be seen not merely as wonderful pieces of cinema, but as a kind of wise teaching, as deep reflections that are worth considering even for everybody who is not part of the immediate events or part of the times. As I said, for my part, I think about this in relationship to tragedy and the necessary re-establishment of justice with its limitations. So Park Chan-wook's achievement is greater than people can realize because he wins a palm d'or or something like that. That does not come close to it. But it is a good signal and is a recommendation that people should see these movies. We have already talked about two Korean movies. Perhaps we can find more. There are at least three, four directors we all admire, and we might find more titles, therefore, to talk about and try to detail this Eastern experience that is indeed so very different in terms of storytelling. Yes. Thank you, Titus. Thank you, George. It's been a wonderful conversation. It's always a great time that I have, when I have whenever I talk to you both. Same here. Thank you very much, Titus, for having us. It was a pleasure. All the best, and let's do this again. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. Bye.